0: Banks herding the vulnerable into danger. And the sellout of sovereignty that's leading to war. Coming up in this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 20th of January, 2023. I'm Robert Barwick, and I'm joined today for the first time in 2023 yeah, by Citizens Robert. Party founder and leader, Craig Isherwood. Mm, Welcome, thanks Craig. Thanks, Robert,
1: yeah. Good to be back. Ready yes. for another
0: pretty action-packed year, I suspect. Uh, it's already started. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, what we're going to be talking about, Craig, is a we, want, we really want to bring home the dangers that are being forced onto people out there by the banks aggressively getting rid of cash. And branches and ATMs. Um, and, it's, and these are real dangers, and the banks want to get away with not addressing it. So we're going to bring that home um, as part of making people understand why our postal bank solution is so important. And also, there's a really disturbing military build-up in northern Australia that's making us a target in war, and it's happening because we've given up our sovereignty. And we, we people need to understand this, because if we're ever going to, you know. Solve this war danger. We're going to have to reverse these these um, issues. Um, before we begin, just want to remind people that it's as the tw- as it's the twentieth of January now. That's only essentially two weeks until the deadline for inquiry for submissions to the inquiry into ASIC and its handling of complaints, the Australian Securities Investments Commission's handling of complaints. So, if you have, if you're a victim of ASIC and the the financial system, you haven't made a a submission yet, please do. Do not put it off, and help spread the word and get other people to do it. We need all the financial victims who had experiences of ASIC to make sure they make um, submissions to this. So, we're going to keep reminding people to do that. The deadline is the 3rd of February. We're hoping we might be able to get an extension because this is going to be a significant inquiry that goes for 18 months. But they put these deadlines on submissions and right now it's the 3rd of February. So assume it's the 3rd of February and make a submission accordingly. And if and um, to those who are watching, and you know who you are, if I've told you I'm going to help you with your submission, that is definitely going to happen, so fear not. Um, I'm getting ready to do the citizens' parties and yours in the coming week or so. Um, all right, Craig, let's get to business. Banks herding, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, the vulnerable into danger. And what we're talking about, Craig, is the effect of the banks closing branches and ripping out um, ATMs so they can stop people using cash and trap us inside the banking system. That's what the banks want to do. But it's not without cost. No. (laughs) And the biggest,
1: Robbie, you know, when I think about this now, what I would say to people is if you want to lose your cash, vote Liberal, vote Labor. Because that's what it's boiling down yeah, yeah. to. This is not an issue of how they handle money and stuff. This is the fact that the political parties, the major political parties, both of them are letting the banks get away yeah. with you know, creating a monopoly. Well, they've already got a monopoly, but creating a dictatorship whereby they're saying the only form of monetised transaction you're going to have is in our system.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's the key here. This is a, the, we're losing our sovereignty, and I think the, the points that we've been making recently about this are very important, Cash means sovereignty. Yes. Right? And if you take cash away, you lose sovereignty. Yep. That means that you don't have the choices that you thought you'd have or could have because you're under the control of a banking
0: dictatorship. Well, and that's the thing, Craig. We, our party, for a number of years now, has been on the front lines in fighting the war, against the war on cash, right? It's us versus the banks. And we're doing it because it's us versus the banks, this is not something that's a knee-jerk reaction to technology. And in fact, you know, there r is there isn't there is a place for the efficiencies, the certain, well, the very, certain efficiencies it, of digital it's, banking. It's very useful. Exactly. But if that's context, exclusive, if if no. as the banks demand yeah. right and they take away the alternatives, then there's all sorts of consequences for that. And and our argument is the banks are doing this so they can take more control over us. And if they were banks that actually functioned in our interest, right, That well, if they were banks that functioned in our interest, they wouldn't be doing it, for one. Mm. But these are particular banks that that serve a globalised banking oligopoly, which has taken away personal financial sovereignty and national sovereignty of nations. We want to bring back a national bank and a national banking system to bring back our national sovereignty and a re- the retail side of that, which we propose as a post office bank, will support personal financial sovereignty, right, so that you can treat banks as you should, which is a service for you, not a, a the equivalent of a, a dairy shed where you're hooked up to be milked for them. Yeah, and right? look,
1: it's like a death by a thousand cuts. I mean, if you had a postal bank, right, that actually went, you'd be able to go to the Postal Bank and deposit cash. I'm not allowed to deposit cash in the National Bank unless it's more than $500. Yeah. And they said, no, I'll go to the ATM, you can do it that way. No, I can't, because you have to have a piece of plastic. And because our organisation has, as most organisations, two signers to access a bank account, you can't use the card because there's only one signer on that card. Therefore, the bank says, no, no, you can't deposit using the ATM because there's only one signer on your card. So, A, you can't bank cash. You've got to go to the teller to do it, right? And then you're told by the manager of the bank, no, you should do it through the ATM because they don't even know their own internal processes, right? Or if they, you have to explain it to them. So all this is designed to say, oh, how, you know, this, this cash yeah, is they, causing well, exactly, a problem. Exactly. And this is, it's an absolute crap. No, it never used to be like that, but the intention
0: is to drive people away from cash because they want to make it too hard, all right. So, what are, we're going to talk—the the thing we're going to talk about—that relates to the headline of hurting the vulnerable and the danger—we're going to talk about that in a second. Mm. Before we do that, I want to give people a pricey of a new book that's just been written, Craig, called "Cloud Money: Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets" by Brett Scott. And this was published in April twenty twenty two, so or April or March twenty twenty two, last year. Um, and it's a—I read it over the Christmas New Year period, and it's an—it's an excellent book. On this question of cash, um, now what it, what I found in reading it is I didn't learn anything new about the importance of cash. What I learned new from the book was the technical details of how the financial system worked that that um, drew that led this writer Brett Scott to his conclusions, and his conclusions were in agreement with what we have been saying for three or four years, and somewhat instinctively, right? So. But he's come from a much more actually informed position about the mechanics. And I want to try and do a little bit of justice to that. But I do really want to encourage people to um, buy and read this book. This is a book that's that's definitely worth reading if you want to learn something. He goes out of his way. He calls himself an economic anthropologist, actually. (laughs) Uh, He's a a journalist, a financial broker, and an economic anthropologist. So he's had a lot to do with the the financial system. Um, So our position was before I read this book, that all digital banking and commerce means that the banks get a cut of all our transactions, they get our data, and they get control over our behaviour. And they actually do, and they do exert that control. So his book essentially proves the same thing um, in technical detail. I want to just give give you some elements of the book, um, and we can discuss it as we go. So one of the overarching points Brett Scott makes is what we're dealing with with the move to cashlessness and digital is not a revolution, this is really significant because it's it's, pre- it's presented as, man, technology is just fantastic. It's re- revolutionising the way we do things. He says, no, it's not a revolution. It is simply automating the way the banking system already works mm-hmm. and, and in a way that puts more power in the hands of the private banking oligopoly, which he calls a banking oligopoly, right? Um, it's called cloud money. We'll put this picture up that we... Uh, I did a book review for our in the alert service. We'll put this picture up, which, which I took from one of the uh, YouTube interview he did, and it sort of presents, presents the idea that there's the, those UFO looking things he's presenting as the, as the globally interconnected banking system, and they're responding to all our requests of permission and it's essentially permission to, to transact right and they' massive processing, etc, um, and it's like a, a big cloud and they're just hovering over the whole system. And going cashlessness feeds them more and more power and more and more of everything. Um, now, so that was his overarching point. It's not a revolution. It's automation of the existing system in a way that gives them uh, more power and control, and more of everything. Two, he he emphasises there's two fundamentally different types of money, because what because when people talk about just his list there cash, cards, crypto, um, etc. When people talk about all these different varieties of money, he says they, they're just tending, tending to focus on the surface differences. And in a lot of them, then there's, there's no real difference behind the scenes. The fundamentally different types of money he calls state money and bank money. Now, state money is what the government of your country, which you've elected, you know, which is answerable to you, says this is what is legal tender in our country. And that exists in two forms, and only two forms. It exists in, as central bank reserves, and that's in the electronic form, and when those reserves, which are essentially IOUs from the state, when those reserves, at the request of banks, are turned, the, the reserve gets deleted by a certain amount, and that amount gets turned into a physically written promise, that physically written promise is called cash, right? It's, a, it's essentially the same type of money, but one is in a, in a printed form, right? And that's what we call cash, and it's legal tender in our country. That's what's legal tender. The other type of money is bank money, right? This is what, um, it's entirely, di- all, all bank money is digital. Um, it's controlled by the banking system, and really uh, cleverly, he compares it to casino chips, because you go into a casino with cash, but you don't use your cash in the casino. You exchange your cash for chips, and those chips represent money inside the confines of the casino, right? And that's the equivalent of bank money. And he makes this point that even the word cashless is rubbish because by using the word cashless, the banks, et cetera, are trying to get people to focus on what's not there. Where he said the reality is by being cashless, it means you are using exclusively bank money. And he said it'd be, it would be more accurate to call it the bank chip society instead of the cashless <laughs> society. In other words, all you're using is bank chips, right? Um, the equivalent of bank chips, bank casino chips. Um, okay, the banks wanting to the, the banks want the public to think that the move to a cashless society is the equivalent of the technological advance from horse and cart to horse's carriage. Just just jump back
1: back a bit to the of the casino chips, Rob. You see, people may not realise this, but you can't take those chips out of the casino. No. They're only usable in that casino. So you come in with cash, gamble, win some money, whatever, get the chips, but that's it. Yeah. And that's the point you're trying to make.
0: It's totally and utterly confined. They don't want you to leave the casino. No, that's and, right. And the word and, and the analogy to casino is really apt in more ways than one because they are casinos and, and they, they trap you into their internal dynamics, which is what the banking system is trying to the do. The day you realise that by particip- when your money is in the bank, the way the banks are allowed to behave, they are casinos. Yeah. Actual, they're gambling with it. You're going to want to hightail it out of there, and they don't want you to, so they want to get rid of the way you get out of there, which is to be able to cash your chips back in, into cash, right? Yeah. All right, anyway, so then he talks about the psychology of this a little bit. The banks want the public to think the move to a cashless society is the equivalent of the technological advance from horse and cart to horseless carriage. And, of course, horseless carriage was the cart, right? Um, but he says, look, that's just that's just rubbish, because the issue with cash is it's not, it is not that it's old technology, even though it's been around longer than digital. That's not the issue with it. It's different technology. And so he's, he's, he likens it, it's not, cash is not like the horse and cart. Cash is like the bicycle. The bicycle is a different type of transport. Yes, it's slower, but it's available to anyone to use freely, right? And it's very flexible. And it would be unthinkable to ban bicycles. <laughs> unthinkable. Why would you want to ban bicycles, right? They're not actually um, a threat to... They're, they're useful for you. You know, if, if, the, if the oil companies and the retail petrol stations, chains, could ban bicycles, they'd, have, they'd love it. Mm. But we would never, ever, ever think to let them do that, right? So he's saying, look, this is, this is um, the equivalent. Again, on the psychology, he says, the bank's claim, and many people think that it is the consumer making the decision to go digital. But in reality, the banks are making the decision for them because it's in the bank's interest far more than the consumer's interest. Yeah, you like the... When you you flash your phone nowadays over one of those little sensor pads, right? Yeah, it seems so um, efficient for you. And yeah, you can get caught up in that a little bit. But fundamentally, the real beneficiary of you doing that is the bank. Far more than you um, are doing that. And so what the banks have done is they use marketing and influences to make people assume, and the way they do it, they want people to assume that everyone else is doing it already. And that's how the ads are pitched. You look like the the, the only one who's not doing it, right? Um, And so you think, okay, I'm going to do that. That's what I've got to, you know, I'm the the odd man out here. That's what I've got to do. And a lot of marketing is just that kind of public manipulation anyway. Banks have used it um, in this case. And what they do when it comes to cash, the banks and the system, they demonise it. And there's three, he's identified three things they demonise cash based on. One, they call it old-fashioned, they call it inefficient, and they call it dangerous. Dangerous meaning it's used in organised crime and, and tax evasion. So let's go through those. Is cash old-fashioned? Yes. Thank until goodness. The, <laughs> thank goodness. Until the power fails. Right? And when, when the power fails and the old-fashioned guy is the only one who can transact and all the other people think, oh, maybe that's not the real issue, whether it's fashionable or not. It's always there. It's always reliable. Right? So that, that's first. Inefficient. Well, when you transact in cash, Craig, you and I do a transaction. I take money out of my wallet and I give it to you and you say, yep, I'm paid. Here's your done. stuff. It's all done. Yep. Now that has that taken a minute or two? Maybe I've got to count some change, etc. And um, you know, has that taken whatever? Yeah, it has, but it's all done. When you transact in in, um, in digital, yeah, you you are just waving your card or your phone over a sensor. But what's actually happening by the act of doing that is what you're doing is you are sending a message to your bank asking permission from your bank to make this do this transaction your bank if it grants you that permission and most of the time they do so people never think about that side of it but there are but then some instances arise when they arise when they don't but the bank asks you've asked your bank for permission that's that's a digital message that bank then sends a message to the central bank to send a message to the custom the, the person that you're transacting with their bank to credit their reserves at the central bank and then make that change in the, the customer's account. And this is all sorts of, these are millions and millions and millions of such messages flying through the, the cloud every second of every day. It's a very, very complex, complicated process that's, that's underway, right? And it's, and it's um, uh, far more than just using cash. Doesn't mean that we doesn't mean you shouldn't have that process, and it's good that the banks have automated. It's not done through paper anymore, but they want it to be exclusively that, and mm. that is not a simpler process than the transaction in cash. It's just not. Um, but of course, what happens when you do that process is uh, y- y- the, all the little transactions, right? You get less. You know, there's a bias towards doing all the little stuff that way. There's less ability to do the ca- little cash transactions because there's less change around. Someone's told me on the weekend that he tried to buy a coffee up in the north coast of New South Wales, and the coffee shop was um, card only, digital only. And he complained, and the guy said, "I don't like being cashless, but I can't get change." Mm. And I can The reason he couldn't get change because there's no bank branches around to get change from, so he has to go cashless. And my friend who told me didn't have a card on him, so he couldn't buy a coffee. There you go. Right? Um, and this is this is sort of things happening more and more. Um, so these, oh, and the other one, so that's, that's the efficiency question, right? It's not that efficient at all. And all that infrastructure that we're talking about, electronic infrastructure, is incredibly vulnerable. It's vulnerable to power failures. It's vulnerable to um, physical EMP-type attacks, which don't just come from war. They come from outer space and whatever. It's vulnerable to those things, um, and it's vulnerable to uh, uh, hackers, yeah. right? The, all the data that gets, gets collected is vulnerable to hackers. So the last one is dangerous, is cash dangerous? Well, okay. Do does organized crime use cash? Yes it does. Does organized crime use restaurants? Yes they do. Does organized crime use cars? Does organized crime use public transport? Does organized crime use cards? You can Of course they do. They use everything. Like that's not an argument about cash. But get this, the actual real organized crime and and money laundering and tax evasion that takes place in the world, the vast majority of it, it's the big digital. stuff, is digital because it's 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 bank transfers to tax havens, mm. which are these tax havens shouldn't even exist. They're a blight on the world. The the British set them up after World War II, right? Britain, as we've described many times, the city of London is a lawless financial enclave in the world that should be shut down, and it uses a system of criminal tax havens to, feed, to funnel wealth to it from all around the world, um, that's where the big stuff happens, not through cash, right? Little stuff happens through cash, but not the big stuff. And that is not a reason to actually ban it. One of the reasons for that, Robbie, is the sheer bulk of cash, right? Yeah, exactly. It's got a
1: physical presence, right? Therefore, it has a weight. It has a presence. Yep. And to do a lot of big transactions in cash requires a lot of bulk, Yep. And that's actually a self-protecting so it's act- exactly, mechanism. Exactly, it? exactly. It is, it is. <clears throat> if you're going to put a million bucks in your car,
0: right, it would be noticeable. And cr- Exactly. <laughs> and cr- So crack down on the big stuff, go after the electronic side of things, right? Um, okay. And then the final point he makes about this process, the, the, the main point, is that so the banks are trying to induce you to believe that this is the consumer driving it, that you want it, you want to be like everybody else, this is new technology, etc. you're embracing new technology. But the, big, the, the, the nastiest part of this is the banks are forcing the entire process. And how are they forcing it? By shutting branches and removing ATMs. Because branches and ATMs are the ramps into and out of the casino. Mm. They're the way you can get out. And they do not want people to get out. And so we, Martin North, we talked about this last week on the show, Martin North did a survey that showed there's more demand for bank branches in regional Australia than in metropolitan Australia. But that's where the banks are shutting down most of the branches, in regional Australia where there's more demand. Mm. But there's also more cash use in regional Australia. And that's why the banks are shutting the branches. They want to stamp down on that cash use. They do not want people being outside their system. They don't care about the impracticalities of it. This is where the government is allowing them to get away with just being total bastards of people and they're abusing their oligopoly status to do that. Um, But they don't care, right? And so... Brett Scott makes the point, when you use use cash, the transaction is done. When you transact digitally, there's an enormously complex process happening in the cloud, which we talked about before, um, uh, whereby what you're doing is requesting permission from your bank to buy something, which means your bank sends a digital message to another bank to settle the deal. All these other gimmicky payment apps, like Afterpay and PayPal and all those sort of things... All they are is more middlemen in that process. Complicating things. Very much.
1: We had an incident in our own organisation where Mm -hmm. PayPal changed their terms and conditions. Right. And they changed the country where the payment went to. Now, for a $30 transaction, the ANZ Bank happened to pick this up and it put a stop on the credit card that we were using in order to be able to do it. Now, they sent an email, they sent an SMS to the cardholder, who happens to be one of our directors, but she is very suspicious of all the scams that are yeah. coming from uh, from, yeah. from mobile phones and yeah, so yeah, forth. Yeah. And she just ignored it, which was the right thing yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. So what happened is this created an absolute absolute chaos because PayPal says, oh, your card's not available. We'll take it from somewhere else. So then they took the money out of another bank account of ours. And I, I look and said, where's this money? Why is this money coming out? $30, you know? This has never happened before. This is PayPal. This, this, this uh, person that's, you know, that we're paying, we've done this 5,000 times before. Why is this happening? It took two days to get to the bottom of it, right? And it wasn't the bank chasing us up. It wasn't yeah, PayPal yeah, yeah. chasing us up. It wasn't our supplier that was chasing us up. We had to do all that work, and it took me over two hours of tracing back to find out what had happened. And it was simply that PayPal had changed their terms and conditions, and the bank said this now looks like the... the, the, the um, you know, the computer programs that the bank uses on oh, no, it, this now looks suspicious. Think about the wastage. Yeah, of course. Of that. Very, and we're just one yep. customer. This would have happened what to every to single PayPal customer yep. that was paying in this mode. What does that do to productivity? Exactly. Right. And it just and this is, this is what makes you even more suspicious,
0: uh, not less suspicious about this process. So um, back to cash... Cash, by comparison, is the only payment process that ticks all the boxes in terms of being beneficial. It's simple and accessible. It's reliable. In other words, you can use it under all conditions. It's certain. You exchange the cash. The transaction is complete. Both sides know that, um, and it's private. And Brett Scott makes the the concluding point. He's not advocating. So he, I'm, I'm quoting him because he's done all this work and come to these certain conclusions. He's not advocating entirely cash because that would be impractical, etc. But what he is advocating is at all costs we must keep the cash payment system alive as a parallel payments system at all costs, um, just to balance the power of the banking system. And to right? protect it in a sense, and protect the
1: consumer, because otherwise you've
0: got no protections.
1: It's all become yeah. as I said before, I use this term dictatorship. But that's what the banks want. That in their interests, they are only out to make money for their shareholders. And to maintain power in the system because our solution, which is a postal bank, a public national bank and a postal bank, a government-owned bank, the issue there is that we want a bank that services the population first and foremost, provides for the, 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 the legitimate and necessary transfer of money in order to promote the physical economy. That's not what the banks want. No. So... They, they want massive, maximised profits for them, and come what may. And you have to ask the question, Robbie, or you, the viewers might ask the question: Why is it that it is only the Citizens' Party that is jumping up and down about this issue? Why is it us and why, our, collabor- and, and, and 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 our collaborators, and our, our collaborators? But why isn't, why aren't the major parties doing this? Well, I think the answer is obvious: is that we know the Liberal Party is the party of the bankers. And at the present time, the Labor Party hasn't gone down the route of the old Labor Party like Curtin and Chifley yep. and had the,
0: the balls to literally stand up and say, you're not going to do this. And in fact, Labor is so pro-banker now that the, the head of the banking lobby, the CEO of the Banking Association, Anna Bligh is a former Labor Premier. That's the, that's the problem. But Craig, we've now got an example, as good an example you'll see, about how the banks are only in this for them. And that, that brings us to the, the headline of this, of this segment Herding the public, the vulnerable into danger. Um, so I want to play now a story that was on Channel Ten here in Melbourne two nights ago, and it kind of speaks for itself. But um, so just watch it, and then we'll discuss it. First tonight, the sophisticated scam which has cost at least one couple their life savings. It started with a suspect text message which was followed by an alert from the bank but that too turned out to be the cyber criminals impersonating bank staff, costing the couple almost $100,000.
2: After decades of hard work to build a nest egg, it vanished in an instant. Your stomach drops, um, you know, to think that that's that's just all, all gone. James had just returned from a weekend away when he received a text from someone claiming to be Uber. He then received a series of messages purporting to be his bank, Westpac. And didn't really think anything of it until an hour and a half later, Westpac... Uh, under their their text thread, where I'd received all of my previous texts, the number matched Westpac. So did the series of further messages and calls, which talked the first home buyers through three transactions. Hello there, my name is Martin. I'm calling you from the uh, Westpac Fraud Prevention Team. You know, I moved my funds into what I thought was going to be my new account. They transferred ninety eight thousand dollars. Now the bank will only refund three. You know, it was everything. It was our kind of. Our safety net and, um, you know, everything we'd earned up into that point. So
0: they utilised technology to actually pretend and trick your phone.
2: In an email to the couple, the bank said, While we are really sorry that you have fallen victim to a scam, we note you were scammed by a third party, not Westpac. Because you're just a number in the system, so... It's been a heavy toll. Westpac says it will never ask customers to transfer funds to another bank account, no matter how legitimate the request may seem. If you're ever in doubt, call back on a publicly listed number.
0: Our company has 20 to 30 of these reported every two to three days.
2: The ACCC is urging consumers to be wary, but is also calling for the financial sector to do better. Financial firms are in a unique position to assist with these efforts. Investigators believe the couple's funds have now been transferred offshore and converted to crypto. You know, obviously, like, on my part, there's a lot of guilt there. They're now working with a financial dispute company to negotiate a resolution. Rebecca Powell for 10 News First.
0: So... What you got there, Craig, is, first of all, let me point out, it's a young couple, clearly comfortable with online banking and telephone banking and that world. Clearly comfortable. Like, I'm fairly comfortable with it. And my daughter, <laughs> she's very comfortable with it, right? She's Maybe too comfortable. Too, exactly. Well, too comfortable with it. Um you know, she's now at the age where she can do all... They understand the apps, etc. They can do all this sort of thing. It's second nature to them. It's not scary. It should be more scary than it is, to be honest. Anyway, but they are a sophisticated couple. I'm not going to say they're computer nerds, but they clearly know the technology. They're comfortable with it. Yet they could not see a scam that has ripped them off of $100,000. And this is the bottom line... It is in Westpac's... In- now, that, that young couple liked banking online, or th- they thought they did until now. <laughs> but it's in Westpac's interest to have them and all of its customers banking online. That's in Westpac's interest. But now they are online and, and exposed to that scam and get scammed. What did Westpac say? Not our problem. We'll give you $3,000 of the $100,000. Exactly. $3,000 of 100000 <laughs> Go away. Now... Westpac, NAB, Commonwealth Bank and ANZ are currently herding up all their elderly, vulnerable customers, many of whom have a few pennies, by the way, hmm. and saying to them, we want you to go online. You go into the bank. We know, we know from um, first-hand accounts, the bank staff are under direct pressure from their management to sign people up, register them to online banking, all these old, elderly people, Right. So now they're in online banking, not because they want to be, it's 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 uncertain to them, it's scary to them, they feel vulnerable to this, and the banks are going to say, Okay, we've got you in there now. If you do get preyed on by these predators, you're on your own. Right? This and and then what's the other what's the other part of the equation, Craig? When it happens and you've realized you've been just been had, right? The the, the the most straightforward way to try and start addressing it would be to get out of your house and go down to the bank branch and talk to someone about it. And in all likelihood, that bank branch ain't gonna be there because the bank shut it down. And you will be stuck on a phone for hours and hours and hours waiting for someone in some call center somewhere and then you might be thinking, how do I know this, phone's not a, this, this number's not a scam too? Because those poor Westpac customers, they were getting their text messages from the same number they get from Westpac, mm. right? I mean, this is this – is, so it's not about that technology shouldn't be used. It shouldn't be forced. And what the banks are doing by shutting branches is forcing it. Now, what is it? We're, we're 30 minutes into this show, Craig, and I, I was tempted to play – a bit over 30 minutes. I was tempted to play another video. I think we've got, we don't have time for it, so we're not going to do it. But I want to describe it, and then we're going to put a link below. There's, a, um, there's an ex-NASA engineer who does it named um, Matt, Matt, I think, Roba. He does these fantastic videos that are sort of entertaining for kids. He does all sorts of engineering gimmicky stuff, et cetera. But he got involved in trying to take on an internet banking scam run out of India. And I'm going to, the link we're going to put below, please take the time, when you get a chance to, 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 the, to the viewer... Take the time to click on it. We'll have it queued up to the right spot. And this guy, Roba, is going to describe this particular internet banking scam. And you'll be blown away at how sophisticated it is. Absolutely blown away. So just watch the five minutes from, the, from the, um, uh, where we've queued it up. Right? You can watch the whole lot if you've got time. And, and please do it. It's very entertaining. And the thing about
1: this, Robbie, this scam, these scams are so lucrative. Now, you're talking $4 billion in Australia alone. Therefore, they can afford to be sophisticated and they'll keep coming out with more and more sophisticated Well, programs.
0: the $4 billion is what um, that Channel 10 report said. The ACCC made a statement about yeah. it, right? The ACCC has pointed out that that guy who said that he's getting 20 or 30 of these every few days, the ACCC has said, look, this is $4 billion. This is running at $4 billion a year, mm. this type of scamming of people. $4 billion. And the banks are taking away people's defenses from that. Right? And the most and who and Matt Rober makes the point in this in this docker that people should look at. Who are the biggest targets? The elderly. Because they're also they can be they can be very, very trusting. Um, so this brings us back to the postal bank, Craig, because um, doesn't this I mean this all does underscore the importance of it. It isn't there to maximize profit, it is there to serve customers. And because it will always, our proposal for a postal bank is every post office in Australia will be the branch of a government bank that provides full banking services. It will pay for itself because it's a bank. It won't maximise profits, but it'll make a profit. It'll pay for itself. The government could even get a dividend back from it. It'll and more make importantly, so much money. Robbie, you
1: can say to its customers, "No, if you feel uncomfortable about going into the digital world, it's fine. We're yep. still going to have these services. We for will you. give you passport we'll accounts. Have accounts do old, we'll have old-fashioned money." We'll have old-fashioned passports, passbook accounts. Yes, it's not efficient. But as generational change means when you're talking about your daughter, it means that passbooks are going to become less and less used and they'll get phased out by a process of attrition over time. You don't have to worry about that. But when you've got a private system, a private banking system trying to maximise profit, Mm -hmm. they say, oh, no, these things are very inefficient. Therefore, we've got to get rid of them. Only because of their profit motive. Exactly. Take the profit motive away have a service motive instead for the general welfare and the public good and you have a completely different outlook on what banking should look like and, and that's and why it'll we, pay for itself and that's why you have other policies like Glass-Steagall separating out the speculative side of banking to the actual real necessary retail side of banking there's a whole raft of policies that have been completely destroyed in the last 40 years that used to protect customers yep. against the ravages of you know of the private banks But we're we're talking about a a dictatorship that's out of control. The major parties are not taking this on. And if you vote for the major parties, you're voting for your own destruction in terms of the loss of cash and the loss of sovereignty.
0: The major parties, Craig, have the same attitude to this as they did with Uber coming in, right? Uber is a predatory operation that came in, never made a profit, but was funded by the Saudis and, and Google to... What it did is it saw all this value locked up in these taxi licences that, yes, some were owned by corporations, but plenty of them are owned by people who'd worked in the taxi industry their whole life, and that was their retirement, etc. And it wasn't their fault, that was the licence system, but that's what it was, and and the governments just said, oh, this is new technology, Yeah. Because you have an app called Uber, you drive a car, you don't have to follow the same rules as the taxis do. And they bankrupted the whole lot. And now instead of you sitting, getting a cab in, in the city of Melbourne and you paying cash and that cab driver keeps the cash that you pay him to pay for his car and pay everything else he does, when you go catch an Uber, it's all done. <laughs> Talk about the complicated system we're talking about. Um, so you've, sent, you've, you've asked permission from your bank right, to catch an Uber, and your banker said, yes, you can catch an Uber, and Uber has given you permission to catch an Uber, and the, guy, the, the, the driver comes and picks you up, and then you do the, you, you do the trip, you're supposed to rate the poor guy, um, and then when the payment is made, it goes, some of it goes into that guy's bank account, a third of it goes to Uber's account in the British Virgin Islands, so they can avoid tax, and that's one third of that transaction, not staying in Melbourne, helping the Melbourne economy, being ripped out of Australia, right? Just siphoned out every day someone uses an Uber. That's a, that's a big difference. Every time you use the old cab system, all that money stayed in Melbourne. Now, one third of it is being siphoned out to a place that pays no tax. And the politicians are just gullible assholes, all on the take, And they applauded that, yeah, 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 until some smarter ones like the mayor of London said, this is crap, the Chinese banned it. You know, everyone who actually paid attention banned it. Um, And we all said, my convenience is all that matters. No, we've now got a system that just funnels money out of Australia and they all clap that in and they're clapping this one in because for the same reason, uh, give the banks what they want, stuff what's really happening, what's really good for the consumer, what's really good for Australia, Mm -hmm. right? So that's their business. We know they're full of it. And that's, I hope the the viewer has a better sense now of why this is so important to fight. And when you, I'll make two other points, final points about the postal bank. One is it provides a safe place for people to do their banking, safe from all this stuff, right? Or much, nothing's ever perfectly, perfectly, perfect, but um, infinitely safer. And if we get it up, it would be a massive shock to the banking oligopoly. And they will think, oh my God, this has backfired on us. We do not want to lose legions and legions of customers to that public bank. We better cut the crap we better keep branches open. we better stop trying to get rid of cash. we better serve our customers or we're going to lose them all. And,
1: Robbie, look, there's plenty of examples of postal banks that are the biggest in the world. It's Japan, you know, Kiwi Bank, yep, yep. other places. There's many of them around the world because the, exactly that reason is they do represent this safety mechanism. Yep, yep. And, I, look, I really, I really do have to applaud the banks for going down this road, you know, really trying to ban cash because it's, it's drawing out more and more support It's helping our campaign. For the Postal Bank, it's helping our campaign enormously. The more they do this, the more the banks are being shown up for what they are, but also the political structures are being shown up for what they actually represent. So the more the banks are on the nose, the more the major parties are on the nose because they are not fighting against this, unlike the Citizens Party.
0: All right, so um, uh, the 6th of February, Craig, is is when the the, um, Parliament resumes this year. And in that first week, we're going to try and get up an inquiry, the inquiry we talked about last year into the Rural and Regional Affairs and Transport Committee, into the the closure of regional, the crisis in regional bank branches. Um, So we'll put out a statement next week and look for that statement on our website. Start making contact to your Member of Parliament, especially your senators. We're going to want everyone to start contacting all the senators in their state and start hammering on, on this issue so that when they have to vote on that inquiry, they all this yeah, we better support this and look at the whole thing. So just just wait for that. All right. Um, before we run out of time, let's move on to the quickly to the to the the, the next subject: um, the sellout of sovereignty that's leading to war. And Craig, I just want to do a call out to the what we're what we're going through is based on an article by a, a very experienced um, Australian peace activist, basically named Bevan Ramsden, and it was published in. Pearls and Irritations. And Pearls and Irritations is an online, online blog run by John Menager, who's the former Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet under Gough Whitlam and, and um, Malcolm Fraser. And um, you and I you know, often talk about the fact that we got to uh, collaborate with Malcolm Fraser in his final years there and that was a really great experience, being able it's, to go and visit him and have those it's conversations. It's very interesting
1: when you talk to people face-to-face and instead of taking a third-hand account yeah, through the yeah, media... that's right. ..you end up learning a lot more when you can get to talk to someone face-to-face. And Malcolm
0: Fraser was someone who, with all his experience, was really, really concerned about this question of, of Australian sovereignty, th- selling out to the United States war machine, and um, uh, that's pushing for a war with China, right? And that's why we got to know him. So... John Menagew is was a good collaborator of, John, uh, of Malcolm Fraser as well. And this blog he does, Pearls and Irritations, is an exceptional blog. And it's, the, and it's, and it's, the, it's unique in Australia, what he, what he does there. I encourage people to look it up. And John's actually appealing for people to, in a sense, subscribe or sign up to um, monthly donations, etc. And I really encourage people, if you can do that, please do that. This, it's essential that someone with his contacts... Who's willing? Who's willing to like? He knows how government works. He was the top bureaucrat in Australia for years. He was the CEO of Qantas in the eighties. He was Australia's ambassador to Japan. He knows the system, and he has he has organised around him the contrarians with experience who are saying this direction we're taking is national suicide. Right, and an example is what we're about to go through. So. People may or may not realise, we, we better be brief on this, but people may or may not realise, Craig, that um, there's a massive military build-up in the Northern Territory and it's not by us, it's by the United States. And it is huge. And it's a preparation for war with China. And and it's kind of crazy because you can see the current government is trying to improve things with China. They're really hoping we can get our wine exports flowing again, all those sort of things that that um, were beneficial for Australia. Um, but the, the flips while they're trying to do that, it's all being undermined by this massive build-up. Bevan Ramsden, in this article, goes through that, that miss, this massive military build-up in Northern Territory It's not happening under ANZUS, the, the, the post-war treaty that has given us an alliance with America, which is not as strong as people think it is. It's not happening under that. It's not even happening under AUKUS, which is this joke covering the submarines that, that um, when, when they announced it last year, remember, Biden couldn't even remember... Morrison's mm-hmm. name, that fella down under. Mm. Um, get off your knees. Stay on your knees, that fella down under. Um, but it's happening under something called the Force Posture Agreement. And this came out of Gillard's deal with Barack Obama. Almost all the problems that we've had with China can be traced back to 2011. When Barack Obama came to Australia, Gillard hosted him and he announced the America, America's pivot to Asia. And what it meant was... We, America, have put a lot of effort into the Middle East for the last few decades. We've ruined the place, literally ruined the place. It's been a disaster. We're now saying, oh, well, um, actually, China's a bigger threat than all that. We're going to take 60% of our total military firepower and pivot it to Asia to put in China's face. And everything that sparked off everything else, right? Mm-hmm. This was ha- this happened before Xi Jinping, a lot of people say, oh yeah, China was great until Xi Jinping. No, this happened before Xi Jinping, Even in, and in 2013, when China started building up the islands, that was a reaction to this, right? because that, 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 that included the Marines in Darwin. So they, we agreed to this pivot to Asia, and that led to a, this negotiations with America that came up with this force posture agreement, it's called FPA, and it was signed in 2014. So I'm just going to read you the sections because this is all about what's happened to our sovereignty, right? Just listen to these Article Four and Article Seven of this Force Posture Agreement. I, Robbie, what about Article One? That's incredible. With
1: full respect to Australian sovereignty and the laws of Australia, United States forces <laughs> and the United States contractors shall have unimpeded access to the to you to. To and use of agreed facilities and areas for activities undertaken in connection with this agreement
0: unimpeded.
1: Unimpeded. Where's the sovereignty
0: in that? Well, that is so. Um, well, they think they've covered it because it's they, they open that with this little bit of lip service. With full respect, yeah, we respect your sovereignty. You won't tell us whether we can access our bases or not. No. Oh, really? Right. Um, so that was, that was the first part of that, of Article 4. The, second, the, the fourth part, Australia hereby grants to the United States operational control of agreed facilities and areas. Um, jumping to Article 7, pre-positioning of defence equipment, supplies and materiel. In accordance with the consultation mechanisms in Article 3 of this agreement, US forces may pre-position and store defence equipment, supplies and materiel at agreed facilities and areas, and this relates to, we'll talk about some of the specifics of that in a minute. Um, the pre, point, point three, the prepositioned material of US forces and agreed facilities and areas designated for storage of such prepositioned material shall be for the exclusive use of US forces. Um, jumping forward, United States shall have exclusive control over the access to, use of, and disposition of such prepositioned materials. And then the fourth point US forces and US contractors, their private mercenary army types, shall have unimpeded access to agreed facilities and areas for all matters relating to the prepositioning and storage of defense equipment, supplies, and material, blah, 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 including delivery, management, inspection, use, maintenance, and removal of such prepositioned materials. As mutually determined by the parties, aircraft, vehicles, and vessels operated for, by or for the United States forces shall have access to aerial ports and seaports of Australia and other locations for the delivery to, storage and maintenance in and removal from the territory of Australia of US forces pre-positioned material. And what that means, Craig, is covers things like we've got the, the, we're expanding the Tyndall Air Force Base up there in the Northern Territory, massively expanding it, to be able to position a, a number of B 50, US B-52 bombers, which are the mm. long-range bombers, And they're nuclear-capable. Now, we can't say they're nuclear-equipped because the the, the Americans won't say if they're nuclear-equipped. But we know they're nuclear-capable. And the Americans won't say they're not either. They won't say they're not nuclear-equipped. They just won't say, right? But if you're China, who this is targeted at... You have to assume that they are. You're going to assume that they are. And so what this does, it paints a bigger and bigger target on Australia... And it's happening in a runaway way because of this forced posture agreement. Once we signed it, they've got the rights to it all, right? That's what we're dealing with um, in this country. And so I just wanted, we wanted to bring that to people's attention. It would really, be really important. You can either read a, the article we've reprinted printed in our alert service with permission or go to that um, Pearls and Irritations page and, and read the, We'll put the link to this Bevan Ramson um, article below. Um, but there's an ultimate irony here. <laughs> which is that, Craig, the people that were pushing this whole we've got to stand up to China thing that has led to this have told us that they're doing it to defend our sovereignty. Hmm. Yet there is no more explicit example of the handing over of our actual sovereignty to a foreign power than this agreement. It didn't have to be done through a war. It's just a yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, we'll do this
1: for you, sir. I remember Julia Gillard's... Face when she came out to a press conference yeah. after Abraham <laughs> Obama was here. And she looked like she had been stung, like absolutely shocked. I suspect she was told, you will do this, right? Oh, you'll suffer enormous economic consequences. See, Robbie, people are also fed the lie that China is the biggest investor in Australia. No. Then we have to be concerned about China's investment and so on and so forth. The biggest investor in Australia is the United States, So when we're talking about sovereignty, we're also talking about economic sovereignty.
0: And this is where it gets to be. And and the United States is our biggest creditor. Yes. And so when the country that's got us (coughs) by the proverbials, Hmm. when it comes to our economy, is the United States. And they're the
1: ones that are now dictating because they say, if you do not do this, we will do this economically. And the government thinks then there is no response to this right, well, what would the old Australian Labor politicians do of old Labor? They didn't want to be part of this very close nexus with the United States because they saw the potentiality of losing our sovereignty. So we have
0: to go when back When there was there. an actual threat, i.e. Japan, in World War II, um, the Curtin government started an alliance with the United States to deal with an actual threat. Yeah. They had no intention of making this some kind of handover of our sovereignty. But you might remember Craig. Malcolm Fraser made the point to us, and in his book *Dangerous Allies*, the problem for Australians is actually psychologically we've always been this way. It's the yeah. United States now. For most of the for most of our history, it was actually the British, right? We we are used to. We've always been. We've never been truly independent. Was Malcolm Fraser's argument? The British ran us. Now the United States, or actually the Anglo-Americans, as we've long often explained, um, uh, are now the power that dictates to us. Right? And we're happy with that and we shouldn't be happy with that because if, if we let them the crazies that have taken over get away with it, we will find ourselves massive targets in a war that could be a war of annihilation. And this is a this, where is the, the, the schools of independent thought
1: about this actual question of real sovereignty? Yep. Where are the schools of independent thought that look at the battles between the, the, the initial American, Uh, revolutionaries against the British system. What is the issue there? The issue was that King George III was using economic policies to destroy the United States, the young, nascent United States at that time. Didn't want them to have their own currency. Exactly. Didn't want to allow them to control the steel production and the means that they could use the necessary uh, raw materials in order to be able to build their economy. It comes back to this issue of the question of the economic theory and we are, uh, where is the alternative economic theory relating to the opposite of British free trade? The policies that destroyed our nations, like the American system of political economy, which is actually something that's very, very good. The built American system is something that we promote, where you actually support manufacturing, you support the credit system. You invest theory. in your
0: infrastructure and your manufacturing
1: exactly. with national credit. Where are the national schools and the universities yep. studying this? They don't exist. Why, as soon as someone puts their head up to start to study these alternative systems, they're smashed to pieces. In fact, you know, you get taught from the very professors in the economics department, oh, you can't think about that. That's rubbish, you know. This is not the system that we are going to promote. So we're talking about a pretty ingrained system here, but this is where we represent, in terms of the policies, our publications. We put out the material that people need to know, and there is is a, a wider body of thought of, of activists out there that we uh, tend to uh, coalesce around in order to be able to get this message out. So, I mean, this is why we keep coming back. in you vote Labour and Liberal, you're going to destroy yourself, your country and your cash. <laughs> right, a, it's as simple as that.
0: That's true. And sovereignty starts with financial sovereignty for the individual and the nation. That's why we need a uh, keep cash and, a, and have a postal bank. All right, Craig, we'll leave it there. Remember... Um, my reminder on the ASIC uh, inquiry, third of February. Help spread the word for that, and um, look for our statement next week to get people to, to start making um, phone calls and send emails to senators for the uh, inquiry into the regional banking crisis. Thanks for joining us, Craig. You're welcome. Thanks to the reader for tuning. The reader. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in, and tune in next week for the Citizens Report.